This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, and you can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle at SXM Business and find me on LinkedIn. So as you know, March is Women's History Month, where the rest of the country joins us in our daily activity of shining a light on women's contributions to history, culture, and society. The theme this year is celebrating women who tell our stories, which gives us all a chance to consider the enormous impact of storytellers on who we are as individuals and how we operate as a culture. One set of storytellers with outsized impact are our media makers, the folks in the entertainment industry who generate the advertising, film, and television shows that are consumed the world over. As we'll discuss with today's guests, they directly shape our perception of one another and what our cultural norms are and what they could and should be. Madeline Denono is the CEO of the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media, the only global research-driven advocacy organization that works within the industry to create gender balance, foster inclusion, and impede bias and stereotyping in family entertainment media. Madeline oversees the strategic direction, research, and advocacy work of the Institute, which was founded by actress Gina Davis in 2004 and was recently awarded the prestigious Governor's Award Emmy from the Television Academy for its profound transformational and long-lasting contribution to the arts and science of television. Prior to joining the Institute, Madeline held senior leadership roles at Nielsen, Universal Studios Home Entertainment, and the Hallmark Channel, while also being a media maker herself. She served as an executive producer on the Emmy-nominated People's Choice and Gracie Award-winning television series, Mission Unstoppable, and the Gracie-winning feature film documentary, This Changes Everything. So first of all, go see it. It's amazing. But most importantly, Madeline, welcome to Women at Work. Laura, thank you so much. It's an honor and a privilege to join you today and happy International Women's Day for everyone who's listening. Hurrah. So Madeline, for years, I've been interested in the work of the Institute and you as well. You ha- It seems like this was a role that was made for you. Could that have been true or was it just fate that you and the Institute found each other? It's a little bit of both. And I think all of us, as we journey through our careers, uh, make many transitions, maybe transitions we didn't expect. And for me, the pivot came where I had ascended. Uh, I was very lucky to ascend to a certain level on the business side of the entertainment industry and took a beat. And the question that I actually asked myself, as silly as you may seem, seem it to be, is, could I use my power for good? Because many of us, although we may work and do one thing, we're either involved with our children's schools or maybe uh, a sports organization or other types of social impact things. And I thought, well, can I bring my background in entertainment plus social impact and what would that look like? And ultimately that led me to Gina. That's amazing. So were you in contact with her or was it, you know, that network of contacts that brought you there? Well, what's very interesting is both Gina and I attended Boston University and we overlapped, but we never knew each other. And what was interesting is when Gina decided that she wanted a leader from the entertainment community who also had experienced a nonprofit, she actually hired a uh, a recruiter, a Franca Virgili at the time, who being such an amazing investigator, found me. And at that time, like I said, I decided to pivot. So I went on my own uh, exploration, talking to people who had achieved a level of success in the entertainment industry and he, and had pivoted to say the nonprofit sector. And so I interviewed a lot of people to say, hey, did this work for you? And did your skills transfer? And so at the time, I think 
I was one of the few people in Hollywood who wanted to go from the for-profit sector to the nonprofit sector. And Fraka found me. And uh, funny story, I remember I was using a BlackBerry, which I'm dating myself, <laughs> I was using a BlackBerry at the time. And I see this description for the position. And I said to my husband, can you read this? Because I tend to read the verbs, people, just so you know, if you send me an email, I tend to read the verbs. Can you read this very carefully? And he said, this is what you've been looking for. And uh, when Gina and I actually came together, I said to her, what do you want? And she said, I want world domination. And I said, okay, here's what that looks like. One, two, three, four, five. And that's how we've been rolling for 14 years. I love hearing this story for a number of reasons, because it's so instructive for so many. There's so many women, I think, who are trying to do what you've done in different ways. How do we shift to work that's really meaningful to us, where we can make an impact in the world? Um, sometimes that's the zig and the zag from our previous careers. Um, it's so useful to hear how you had all those informational conversations to figure out how to do this and where to aim, but that you also had faith in yourself and took the leap. So when you got there, clearly ready to take on world domination, and Gina clearly had a vision. How did you translate that into a living, breathing strategic plan? Well, what was really easy for me is Gina had a very specific vision. She had a specific theory of change. Uh, she had started the institute, bootstrapped it herself. And so for me, I was able to assess what have we done? Mm -hmm. Where do we want to go? How do we get there? What financial support do we need? And then I always like to talk about my, my initials should be OPM versus CEO, which means other people's money. So I'm <laughs> the leader of OPM. And how do you OPM it? Uh, to be able to achieve uh, all of these things. So the strategy, the vision and the strategy were in place. I just supported Gina as the little engine that could to kind of bolster and make her vision uh, even a bigger you know, reality. So talk to me about this theory of change. It's, 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 it's pretty simple. Gina wanted the data to understand at that time, so let me back up. In 2004, if you were to ask someone, what was your definition of diversity? Gender was not on the agenda. And Gina, by watching content, actually with her daughter at the time, who was a toddler, noticed this disparity in terms of female characters, their presence, their agency. And she thought it was really strange given that we're in the 21st century. And she thought, well, I, I wanna know if I'm really right. And so she bootstrapped and was able to fund the first ever study of family content in TV and film and found out at the time, yeah, for every one female character, there were three male characters and so on and so forth. And with that information, she decided that she wanted to engage the business, the storytellers themselves, and not the public, mm -hmm. because they were the ones that were controlling, funding the media, the content, the pipeline. And so our theory of change is predicated on first, what's happening in the industry? What are we seeing in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion? And then we take it out to each and every content creator. And then we measure how are they making progress? How is the industry making progress? And then we will do the study again and measure it. And that's kind of the theory of change. And we know that what we do benefits humanity, but we felt we could be more successful going directly to the people who are making the content versus asking consumers to storm the gates of their, you know, local local TV station or their lo or local studio. And we have been successful based on that cycle, that cycle, that theory of change. So what of the people that you're targeting in the business, what percentage of it are the producers and studios that are funding the projects? 
um, the people working to hire the team that does this, choosing the directors and the writers and the people who are in front of the camera? So I would say we focus on narrative culture change work. So we really focus on what is it that you're saying on screen? We are not focusing on what we consider conscious bias, which is who's getting hired for the job. Mm -hmm. uh, because for decades and probably a hundred years, everyone has known the disparity with mm -hmm. female directors and writers and producers and getting access, access to capital, getting funding. There's many, many, many institutional organizations that have been working on that, the unions, the guilds, all of that. But when it comes to what we see on screen, that could be fixed immediately with a pencil or keystroke. And <laughs> so we decided that that was the low hanging fruit. And that's what we wanted to concentrate our work. It, it's a potent, powerful strategy. It makes perfect sense. One of the questions I have, one of the miracles of your work, but I want to unpack it if we can, is it's one thing if, like you said, it's the the DEI process, the building DEI in the makers themselves who's hired by the studios is one thing. And, the you know, we've talked a lot, especially here, about how if you put di different people in the seats of being the storytellers, you know, it, with different storytellers, different stories get told. How do you get the same storytellers to change whose stories they're telling, what characters they're including, what narrative arcs they're developing? How did you penetrate their consciousness? Well, to level set, uh, storytellers tell stories that they know because it's sharing lived experiences or they love. And we would never want to invade that or their authentic truth. So, uh, however, for the creatives and business executives that want to impact how diversity, equity, inclusion is included in their content, we help them with that. And we have different research okay. tools and help them with that. So, it's about how do we help them implement intent because it's impact okay. over intent. And, and how do we do it in a way that doesn't invade or disrupt the authentic voice of the storyteller? This is, it's a sensitive line to navigate and interesting. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132. And I'm your host, Lars Hour, and my guest today is Madeline Denono, and she's the CEO of the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media. So Madeline, um, as you're navigating this line of how do you respect the storytellers, their individual voices, the experiences that are driving them, but at the same time, help them see fall in love with other stories and other characters. What's the role of your research in making this happen? How do you get to them? Well, there's two approaches that we use for our research. One is benchmarking. How's everybody doing? How many female characters do you have in your stories? How many people of color? How many people of disabilities? Do you have anybody from the LGBTQIA community? Do you have talent that has... Uh, many different types of body shapes. Do you have a lot of light-skinned or dark-skinned characters? Do you have older char you know, characters who are of an age? So we look at all of those kinds of things. And we have one tool called the GDIQ, the Gina Davis Inclusion Quotient, which was funded by google.org and developed for us by Dr. Sri Narayan and his team at USC Viterbi School of Engineering Sale Laboratory in partnership with our research team, which is led by Dr. Meredith Conroy. And so as a collaborative, we can look at uh, gender, uh, screen and speaking time, and then we will um, investigate, you know, LGBTQIA. Uh, we will look at people of color. We will look at these other dimensions to say, how's the industry doing? And we have hit parity for female lead characters 
in the largest grossing family films out of the US and the highest Nielsen rated TV shows back in like 2018, 2019 and 2020 respectively with the disruption of the pandemic on the entertainment production pipeline, those numbers have dipped a little bit, but we have been at least been able to kind of get there. And now it's like, how do we make sure that we can benchmark against say the population, you know, 40% mm -hmm. of the population are people of color, 7% of the population are people from LGBTQIA communities, uh, you know, 20% are people with, you know, various types of disabilities, so on and so forth. The other thing that we have is what we call a pre-production uh, uh, tool. It's called Spellchecker Bias, which was the same partners that we worked with. And it looks at scripts and text. So for example, when people are reading scripts to decide whether they want to fund them or they've had them developed for them, um, you have a lot of people reading these things. We read them for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so we break down how many characters are speaking because if the character's contributing dialogue, that's pretty substantial. And so we don't care whether it's top of the call sheet or the bottom of the call sheet, we will just look at all the characters that are speaking and look at how they're being portrayed. Are they described? They may be described as banker number one. And that's a, an opportunity. And, and just to preface this by, uh, we evaluate it based on where we are in time. Okay. Is this the civil war? Is this the future? Is this current time? And so we do adjust for that. And it's a way to simply point out um, opportunities, you know, for characters. And we will also flag if we see something that is overtly sexist or racist, or etc. Then it's up to the decision makers to decide what they want to do about it. But so, at least we make it easy for them to see or not see what's there. So let me reflect back because there's a lot to this and I want to make sure I'm getting it as well as the audience, which is that, you know, you start with, you can't manage what you don't measure. So it sounds like the first work that you did was start to measure what was happening and get a benchmark. And then um, in addition to continually measuring to see how things are changing over time, there was progress. We had a backlash during the pandemic. There's now this pre-production tool. I love that you called it a spell check for bias. It reminds me of something called Textio, which is a system used to screen um, job descriptions and performance evaluations for bias. Um, but the idea that you're looking at the scripts themselves to provide insight to the production team on um, where there are opportunities to increase representation and flag the problematic sections. Am I getting it? Not interrupting or invading the authentic truth of the story of the storyteller. Right. So that, that's well, where indicated it's a fine line. It's a sensitive line. We don't cross that line. We're not going to tell them what to do. Right. So where something like Hamilton was absolutely part of the creative vision of its makers to recast history. If somebody's doing a piece of historical fiction, you'll and they're trying to reflect the time, you're not going to change who held those roles at that time unless that's the creative vision of the maker. Exactly. Makes a great deal of sense. So come back for a minute. You were talking about some really great numbers that slid back with the pandemic. From the point of the first benchmarking, where were where were we when the institute began, and how what would what did it take to get to those improved numbers? Absolutely, that's a really great question. So back in two thousand four, uh, I would say female characters, depending on if you were looking at female or TV, were probably in the twenties in terms twenty percent of, of screen time. Mm -hmm. Not screen time, but just showing up. 20% of the characters in right. the piece of media. We weren't able to extract screen and speaking time until we launched GDIQ because it was something that required machine learning mm -hmm. and could not be done with the human eye. And at that point in time, we found that even if there was a female lead character, she was on screen and speaking a third of the time less. 
Wow. And her equally weighted build male counterpart. So in the media that we were consuming at that moment and up to that point, it's like the world existed with, you know, 80% fewer women than it does in real life and far less engagement in real life dialogue. So our media world really did not represent our real world at all. Not at all. And when you look at the intersection, which we use an intersectionality lens, when you start to think about, well, of those female characters, which one, which ones were people of color and which ones may have been female people of color and have a disability and which ones may have been over the age of 50. I mean, it shrinks and shrinks and shrinks to literally, you know, 0.02. I mean, so you have to look at the whole, you know, the whole picture. So as you were looking at the whole picture, um, it seems like you've also examined who are the characters that the women who are there and are speaking are playing, um, which, as I understand it, would represents a world where women are overwhelmingly sexualized and victims or secondary characters. Simply put, young, dumb, and sexy. <laughs> right. That's how, what we found. So how did you package this information so that the people who need it, who you were aiming to persuade, could take it on board? Well, just for your listeners, if you haven't uh, gone to our website, which is cjane.org, we have a lot of studies that are published. We try to make them very digestible. We use lots of pictures and charts. <laughs> and uh, what we do is we usually do a large scale industry event to socialize the study. And then we literally drop in to all kinds of existing production meetings and gatherings and present the findings. And then uh, we'll, we'll track you know, how the progress is. So it's a very high touch uh, social impact that we do. It's very high touch because it's based on relationships. It's based on real people making decisions. And this is art. It's creative. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's how we have, you know, operated and been able to engage and share. And also one of the big visions that Gina had in terms of our operating dynamics is we never shame and blame. So if a major content creator invites us in uh, to present or discuss their challenges, they will never ever hear us speak their name in any public forum. You have to decide which path you're gonna take. And we did not take the carrot and the stick approach. We took a collaborative approach because We've been in the industry and Gina is still acting in the industry. <laughs> right. and so we wanted to uh, take a collective impact and a collaborative approach. And that has made it a lot easier because we can be a trusted, credible, you know, outside party um, uh, and, and work with them very collaboratively. Also, um, how often does it really work to shame and blame somebody into better behavior? Helping educate them, building trust, collaborating is the way in so many different dimensions of life we get people to change for the better. So it seems like it was not only wise, it was wise on multiple dimensions to take that approach. Did what were there was there an early success that you felt gave you lift? We've had a lot of successes where uh, storytellers or artists or, or business decision leaders have, you know, heard us and were struck by a particular data point um, and, and made changes to their content, you know, because of that. Um, one story, uh, one of our board of directors, Wendy Calhoun, she's an amazing showrunner writer at the time, and she's also on our yeah, board of directors. She was working on the TV show Empire, which was very, very successful. And for season two, they were kicking around a storyline in the writer's room. And they were thinking of a venture capitalist character. 
And all the characters that they were thinking about were male. And we had a chance to meet with Wendy and we both spoke on a panel and she heard Gina speak at a, an event with uh, the Writers Guild and thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are there female venture capitalists? Could it be a female character? And went back and found binders full of female venture capitalists. And that character uh, was played by the wonderful actor Marissa Tomei for season two. So that's just an example as how, you know, someone has been inspired and it turned out to be, you know, a major, major character. That's a marvelous story. We need to take a short break, but don't go away. When we come back, I'll continue our show honoring Women's History Month with my special guest, Madeline Denono, the CEO of the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can inspire more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm the Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. My guest this hour is Madeline Denono. She's the CEO of the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media. Madeline, welcome back. Thank you, Laura. It's such a joy to be with you. So, in the first half hour, one of the things, of the many things we shared with them, one of them was what I would call core value a way that Gina decided with you, like you're not gonna shame and blame an, in- an industry into changing. Um, but it made me wonder, um, you're so purpose-driven, so thoughtful about the Institute, starting with Gina's original vision. What are your core values for your team, for how you operate within the Institute? Well, one thing that we did very early on when Gina and I came together, uh, we had a limited budget. And at the time in 2009, you could quote verse and chapter on what things were happening in terms of recession and, and all of that. And we didn't know what the climate would be for fundraising. And so we decided to be a virtual organization because unlike 90%, of nonprofits, we were not providing a direct service. Mm -hmm. We're a think tank, we're a research driven think tank. And so we decided to be virtual. That provided a number of opportunities. One, no office overhead. Right. We were allowed to engage people and particularly a lot of women who for many reasons were not able to drive to work or work a nine to five. We had flexible hours, um, flexible location. And as a result of that, many, many women and particularly women who are caretakers of, of any nature, lots of times they get kicked to the curb. And I know you could speak to that. And all of this fantastic institutional knowledge is left behind. And so not only are we able to, we're able to acquire top-notch talent, we were able to retain them. And so we've always been virtual. We have people working for us now in 11 states. And so the pandemic didn't impact us at all. I think we went from Google Hangout to Zoom. Right, just um, simply because a better product came onto the market. That was it. Um, so, so when you talk about team, how you build your team, if someone was a phenomenal PhD in Maine, which we have, great, they can work with us. People could be anywhere. So we were able to get the biggest brains um, to work with us um, and be very supportive of being virtual and having a flexible, you know, lo- location workplace. So that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, we've always empowered our, our team to be leaders, you know, in their area. Um, and that's also, you know, very, very, you know, very important. So there's um, dynamics. And, and one of the dynamics I learned very early on in my career was, always hire people who are smarter than you. 
Always. <laughs> and Always. smart in different ways too. Always. And don't hire people who just yes you to death. Like you will never be creative. You will not be innovative. You have to um, have discourse. You know, you just, you just have to. So there's a lot that's kind of baked into how our team came together and the kind of people that we have, which it's a very diverse uh, team. And, um, and, and most of the people who are with us have been with us a very long time. So Madeline, there's a lot in there that I want to unpack for all, all different kinds of businesses. So the fact that you were able to build this extraordinarily diverse team and retain them the way that you did. If I'm hearing you right, it had, I'm not going to say everything, but a lot to do with the fact that this was a fundamentally flexible virtual way of working that was designed to incorporate all the variation in needs and availability as long as people were bringing their A-game. Am I getting it right? 100%. It was very, very, very intentional. And, you know, think about it. A lot of women make career decisions um, because they want to have families. Right. And a lot of women still today don't think they can have it all. They well, can't have their children and be a CEO and, 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 and. And, um, you know, for us, I can't even cat like how many babies have we had you know on our team it's like oh my god your kid's seven years old now oh my god what happened um so they've you know been able to keep working the whole time and have their family and have their life and not sacrifice yeah and in a world where everybody else is struggling to maintain senior talented women and women came out of the pandemic absolutely fried the idea that your team thrived, stayed together, it's a testimony to the way that you built this kind of like upside down from the way that other organizations do it. And as a result, you're like squarely on your feet. It's really impressive. So along the way, one of the things that lots of organizations have struggled with, particularly the naysayers, oh, we could never be virtual. Oh, that would never work. What about team culture? How, given that you've always operated this way, how, and that you express like, oh my God, your kid's seven years old. Like you connect with each other as people I'm gathering. How did you create and sustain your culture with everyone being virtual? Well, you can't replace the value of in-person um, connections. So of course, and prior to the pandemic, we would gather. Okay. Uh, in, in a location or in other locations. It was very important to have that in-person, high-touch, you know, connection. And um, what did you do? Like, how did you use those in-person connection times? Were they different than your day-to-day -day work? Absolutely, because we use those opportunities to have, I will use the word town halls, um, uh, more broader strategic and visionary conversations, um, you know, informing everyone on activities that they specifically may not be aware of. Um, and, and to also just have that opportunity to socialize and, and not just talk about, you know, business uh, and build interpersonal, you know, relationships. So that is something that we have done over the years, of course, with the pandemic, that wasn't able to happen. Um, uh, and now we're starting to, you know, institute that a little bit more. Uh, but, you know, when you think about, I mean, pretty much so we're on video calls, you know, eight hours a day. Uh, <laughs> and like so we're seeing the team many, many times, you know, during the day, uh, so it's not that somebody's out there, you know, on a golf course somewhere, you know, right. <laughs> it's, it's we're seeing each other all day. So in the process, you're also staying familiar and building the relationships, but it sounds like in your perfect world, which you're coming back to it's digital first, 
with these very purposeful planned in-person experiences to strengthen relationship and build team. Absolutely. And um, historically, we've always had a membership to the Institute and we've always presented our research in person in events in multiple cities. And that's been an opportunity for us to not only bring our team together, but also to bring our donors together, our members together, providing them with uh, business development, networking opportunities. Uh, so that is something that we always have done. Uh, again, that was stopped during the pandemic where we had to do everything digitally. And now we're starting to return to that. Tell me more. I was curious about this. What's the role of the members? Um, what do they, in other words, what's the value proposition? How are they contributing to the Institute and what's motivating them and what are they taking away? So as a research-driven Institute, uh, most nonprofits don't conduct research because it's very, very expensive. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the research we do is funded by institutions, but it's really important that we're able to, you know, have donors that can feel like they're contributing to the institute. So a year, a year-round membership is a two-way type of relationship whereby they're helping us uh, raise funds, but they're also able to learn and participate and become educated around cutting edge research as we look at diversity, equity, inclusion in media, they're able to meet other like-minded people. Who else cares about this besides myself? And network, uh, you know, and professional development. And so, uh, so all of that comes with this membership um, uh, that we that we provide. And then of course, for those people who may may not have been able to get to a certain city, we have a um, on-demand library so they can watch everything that we do uh, on a digital platform. Sounds like a really creative and dynamic way to engage supporters, but also to help they become representatives for the organization and they are changed in the process. I wanna go back to the research for a minute because it sounds like, you know, like Gina was just brilliant in her just from the original vision and the idea, like, let's get the data, let's see what this looks like. And the way that the, the research has just been ramped up and mobilized. I run a research center. Like, I understand this is hard to do. And the partnerships are so very important, both for where funding comes from, how, what research is going to be done, and how it's going to be conducted. Talk to me about the research you did on children's play and Legos. How did that come about and what was the outcome? So we have had the privilege of working uh, with Lego for many, many years. And it was simply born out of me speaking at one of their events digitally a number of years ago. And, you know, Lego is a purpose-driven company. It's baked into their essence from the very beginning. and as a leader, um, they are invested uh, in making sure that all children can play um, and play freely and have access to play and that can grow up um, to be creative and innovative people. And so uh, they wanted to get an understanding of um, diversity, equity, inclusion and how they were doing. And they also were uh, very interested in understanding gendered play. Uh, and also what is the role of parents influencing their children and finding out like what's the footprint that parents are placing on their children? You know, mm -hmm. are, will parents not let, you know, their boys be ballet dancers or play with pink toys, like what, what does that mean? Right, or play dress um, up. Are parents more encouraging of their boys to engage in building and say more STEM act activities and, and influencing their girls to more 
say, softer skills like dancing and, and performance. And they were really interested in understanding where consumers are. And then also thinking about, um, you know, their own, you know, products and how mm -hmm. they're representing the world, not just with a gender lens, but they're looking at everything. They're looking at uh, a very intersectional lens when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion. So we're really proud uh, of the work that they've done, which is really top to bottom um, across the whole company. We believe they're very, very progressive and it's such a privilege to work with them. It makes me so, um, Legos were a major part of my daughter's upbringing. She's about to turn 21. I think they still are. They're everywhere in our house. It's good to know for all the money we devoted to Legos, what a good organization it is. Um, but beyond that, it sounds like the study produced some meaningful results for parents as well as for Lego. Can you share a little bit of it? Yes. And so the study that we did, um, you know, is online and it was international. We looked at a number of different countries and found, you know, those similar uh, themes. But one thing that was interesting is that, you know, the girls were ready just get out of their way. Right. Uh, and so, you know, we found that, you know, girls were much more likely to want to play football or do these other things. And that we found that, you know, boys could be more, a little more hesitant uh, because they were afraid of being bullied or made, you know, made fun of. And that's where the influence and the support and the mitigation, you know, of a parent or a caretaker uh, to reinforce, no, you can play with any type of uh, toy or product or engage in any kind of, you know, activity and, and removing those obstacles and barriers um, that's really, really, you know, important. Um, but those are some of the things that we found. And as a result, didn't Lego stop producing gender-specific products? Uh, they made a commitment to... Uh, remove as much gendered play um, from across their, you know, product lines and to make sure that all children feel comfortable playing with all of their, you know, products. So, um, so appreciate the research and also the chance to talk about men and boys. To what degree is the work of the Institute focused just on women's representation and roles? Or are you also looking at how men are represented in terms of how that impacts the way that women operate in society? That's the point, is how boys or men view women and girls, or however we identify, <clears throat> has a great impact on what happens, you know, in the real world. And one of our long-term and amazing partners is Equamundo, which you should definitely check out a lot of the work that they have done on looking at how men and boys operate around the world um, uh, and, and how to kind of eradicate a lot of the, what we would call, you know, toxic masculinity in order yeah. for men and boys to be able to flourish. And so we've been able to partner on a number of studies uh, one which looked at um, how uh, masculinity plays out in television. Uh, and also we looked at the same thing in terms of, you know, gaming. And for as many stereotypes, harmful stereotypes as there are for uh, female-centric characters, there's just as many for male-centric characters in terms of uh, not being able to express emotions or not having um, bonds and friendship or risky behaviors that, or having to have this unrealistic uh, physique, so to speak, to be you know, accepted. So it does work both ways. It's marvelous to hear that the research, you're looking at it from both perspectives so that you know, the media can improve holistically and everyone can benefit from this. Um, one of the things I noted was that um, on the website, you also had toolkits available. Um, talk to me about the toolkits, who they're aimed for and how you develop them. What we've tried to do, so one of the first things you said to me is, okay, how are you making this data accessible uh, for people who aren't researchers, right? 
And so we distill a lot of our findings and then we put them into simple documents that someone could just print out. And it could be as simple as ask yourself these questions or, you know, do you have, you know, female characters? Do you have characters, uh, people with disabilities? Do you, are you representing um, people of color? If so, how are you representing them? As a way for them to really think about questions they should ask themselves when they're developing content or when they're about to go to casting. Uh, some of our uh, toolkits are also meant for uh, the public to look at in terms of uh, a media literacy angle, because we think it's really important, and particularly when it comes to children and family entertainment for whoever, whether it's a caretaker or a parent, to pay attention to what their children are watching because it's a big opportunity to have a discussion with them, not censorship, but just have a discussion with them. What is it that they're seeing? What are they absorbing? And how may that be making an imprint on them, a lasting imprint in a positive or a negative way? So again, not trying to censor or change what's produced or even what's consumed as much as inform the process, whether it's informing the process of making and well, you are trying to change what's being made, but not the creative intent. Um, but it's really about informing the process on either end, why it's made the way it is, what it includes, but also how do we digest it? How do we make sense of it? How do we become critical viewers? Am I catching on? Exactly, because young children, uh, particularly when you think about under the age of seven, they don't have a media literacy <laughs> skill. They're just absorbing all this in. And we know by the time they hit six or seven, they have pretty solid viewpoints mm -hmm. on who they are and, and how they think about other people. So, so it is really important to interrupt mm -hmm. uh, and, and really assess what are the ideas that are forming as a result of them engaging in media seven to 10 hours a day, depending on the household. Right. Now, it has a huge impact on who they are and what they see as possible. So um, there was recently this award ceremony, the 74th Emmy Awards, and the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media was awarded the Governor's Award. And you were up there with Gina. You looked fabulous. But more importantly, tell me what the award meant to you. It was a wonderful validation of our work to be recognized by our peers and by the industry. Um, and for them to say that, yes, you are making a transformative contribution to the arts. Uh, it, it is, it's such an honor, but it was a true testament to the work that we've done and our team has done, because it is a big, you know, a team that is doing all of this work. So to be recognized um, by the TV Academy. And also I do wanna say that, you know, Gina received her second Oscar from the Motion Picture Academy, the Jean Hertzold Award for her uh, contributions to the arts as well. So to be recognized by the very industry that you're partnering with and targeting um, uh, really validates all of our, all of our efforts. And so with these kinds of awards, it's such like, I think it puts tremendous like um, energy behind you. It gives you such visibility um, and it's a much deserved award. Um, but what's next? What are you aiming for next? Obviously you weren't doing this to win awards, um, but you know, what do you see next in your strategic plan? Well, for us, it's really about pushing the industry forward and making sure that we can start hitting these parity numbers across all of our dimensions and not just you know, gender. Um, there's a lot of work to do when it comes to people of color, people with disabilities and the intersection between mm -hmm. gender and those other dimensions. Um, we have an initiative called hashtag girls lead STEM, which is really focused on encouraging girls to pursue STEM education and career. So check out hashtag Girls Lead STEM. And uh, it, it, it's a collaborative initiative 
and we're really excited to go into our second year um, of that work. And we do have a lot of great research coming out this year. So stay tuned. So I have to imagine, certainly in my community, that there are going to be researchers who probably desperately want to come work with you. There are going to be people who want to support your efforts um, and people who want to be on staff. Tackle all three. If people are interested, they're doing research in areas that feel relevant, what should they do? Well, they can, we're very easy to find at Gina Davis Org. We pay uh, massive attention to who messages us. Uh, also, our website is cjane.org, and you can see where we have job opportunities, or if it's someone in research, feel free. All of our PDFs are downloadable. We encourage you uh, to use them. And if you are interested in supporting us, you know, check out our membership program. Nalan, it has been such a treat to get to talk to you. It's so fascinating to learn from you as an organizational leader, really as a societal leader, and to um, shine some light on the amazing work of the Institute. Thank you so much for joining us today. Again, if people want to find you, there's ginadavis.org, the website, cjane.org, and where can they find you personally? Uh, you can find me um, at Madeline DiNono on Insta, on Facebook. And just our uh, handle is at Gina Davis Org on IG and Facebook um, and Twitter. Alan, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Laura. It's been such a privilege. It's same for us. And thank you all for listening. If you have a question about anything you heard today, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours and find us at SXM Business and find me on LinkedIn. Many thanks as always to my amazing team, Kara Pogue, my producers, Dana Cash and Dion Simpkins. This is Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everyone. We will shine. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.